The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Subject of deacons, God's appointed servants in the church, that's going to begin here in this passage in Acts 6, but we'll soon move on to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Where we're going this morning. And my hope is that as you hear the word and as you see it, that something will grow in you, an, an appreciation of God's wisdom, of God's appointing these folks to these roles, an appreciation of his wisdom will rise in you, and also a willingness to participate in it. So here's my, my main point, my main hope for this morning, is that you would embrace, support, and serve in God's appointed role of deacon in the church. Now there is an appointed role, capital D, deacon. But I want everybody to think about, this is talking to me, even if I never ever become a capital D deacon, I can be a lowercase d deacon. I can be a servant along the lines of what God means for these deacons to be. You would see it, you would support it, you would embrace it for yourself. That's my goal here this morning. Let me pray. God, we come to you now, preparing to look at your appointed role of deacon, and I pray, Lord, that you would come and you would be here in our midst and that you would be moving in our hearts. God, I ask for grace to sustain us here, to sustain me here, keep our minds focused on this material. Lord, would you in grace keep it from becoming dry information? But would it be information that stirs us to action? Lord, do that. Create deacons here, I pray. Capital D, lowercase d, create deacons here this morning by your word, by grace. The service of your church, for the honoring of your name. Do that, I pray, Lord. Amen. We begin with the first observation, the first observation here. God has established deacons in his church for particular purposes. He has a couple things in mind with deacons in establishing them in his church. It's a formally recognized office. It's God's idea for reasons. The first one we've already alluded to a little bit in the Acts 6 passage. He establishes deacons for the purpose of furthering the ministry of the word. We talked about that a little bit already. I'm going to remind you of this. The primary thrust of this chapter of Acts 6, verses 1 to 7, the primary thrust is the ministry of the word. Everything's going along great in verse 1, and then a problem arises. The widows aren't being fed. The apostles look at this and solve it, and the happy ending of the story tells us what the story's about. The happy ending of the story is not... And the widows were fed, and everybody lived happily ever after. The ending of the story is, and the word continued to spread and grow and reach into even more quarters, and the church continued to grow. The ending tells us what the story is about. The ministry of the word is spreading, it meets a barrier, and it overcomes that barrier and continues to spread. It's about the ministry of the word. Deacons arise here in seed form. They arise in the context of enabling the spread of the word. 
They do it by freeing up those who are teachers and preachers to continue to be about the ministry of the Word and prayer. It's clear. that they, they give them more time. But they also enable the ministry of the Word by their actions creating a community that is an attractive community. To use a phrase from Titus that adorns the doctrine of God. You know what adorning means? It means making something look pretty. If you put on earrings, you are adorning yourself. We adorn the doctrine of God. It's possible to adorn the doctrine of God by how we act, by how we live. Deacons are working to create a community that adorns the doctrine of God. They could go out and, and preach this message. I could go out. You could go out and preach this message. Here's this great gospel. God, come into our midst and moving on us. Accept him. Embrace him. He'll change all of your life. And they can hear that, and the person can then like, like look around the corner and look back at the community, become involved and in, in, immersed in this community and say, you guys are just as selfish as we are. You're just as much about your own agenda. You're just as greedy. You're just as self-focused. Nothing's different here. That would be the opposite of adorning the gospel. What we hope to have happen, and what deacons are helping to have happen, is that people would then hear the gospel, would come and be involved in the committee and say, this is an amazing place. People here are so changed that they are living to serve and to meet the needs of others. There isn't a needy person among you because you give of your own to eliminate that need. You lay down your, your time, your money, your lives. I see your love. I, I see your tangible efforts to help people. Deacons are helping to do that. They're facilitating that. In both of those ways, they are helping to enable the spread of the word, freeing up those who are, are primarily preaching and teaching and adorning what it is that they're preaching and teaching. So God's called deacons to church, and in fact, servants of all sorts, to enable the spread of the word, but also he's furthering the ministry in the church by calling deacons for other reasons that are not just like subsidiary ones. Deacons have a purpose in their own right. He's also called deacons to the church for the purpose of adequately stewarding his resources to bless his people. This is kind of the flip side of the other one. Think about this. It's not totally related to, but it's kind of the flip side of it. If the apostles are being set aside for something, but they're recognizing that this is an important need right here, we're going to put you on that task. What they're recognizing is that God thinks this is important also. The meeting of this need right here. Adequate stewarding of oversight of his resources to help his people. In this passage in Acts 6, what's going on here? Widows are in need. <clears throat> I think this principle extends a little more broadly to, to other people in need rather than just widows, but I'm going to talk about widows because that's what's in the passage. How does God feel about widows in need? Anybody have any idea how God feels about widows in need? If you've read the Old Testament at all, it is clear 
just a couple of references. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. The Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 46.9, the Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Isaiah chapter 1, where God exhorts his people, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And in the same chapter, he chastises them because they aren't doing that. The list is long. God's heart is very big for the widow and the orphan. The, the foreigner, the, we might say the refugee in the midst of his people. He cares about people. He's passionate and compassionate for people who are in need. In real need, but they are in need. It's all over the Old Testament. He's very much for the downcast. And he intends to help meet those needs through his people. He says to them, here are people in need in your midst, and I give you a mandate to care for them. It's everywhere. But that's not going to adequately happen if it's just left to be haphazard. Or if it's organized in a way that somebody's overseeing it who actually has another main priority. Like an apostle or something like that. They could put some organization to it, but it's like job four on their list. Prayer, study of the word, preaching of the word, oh yeah, and attending to the widows too. It's way down there. It's not going to happen adequately. Put this in business terms. God decides that I'm going to staff to my priorities. I have a big priority to meet the needs of widows in this case. So I'm going to put somebody on that. And the apostles delegate over to them some authority over the resources as well. They don't, they're not micromanaging this and saying, here, now you're a, a servant here, now here's the allotment of bread for Sally Sue, go take it to her. That would still be the apostles doing it. They say, here's the need, here's some of the resources that people have been bringing to our feet, we're going to turn that over to you, you solve this, we've got some other job that we have to be about. It's a delegation of resources and a delegation of a high priority of God's to these deacons. So in that... There's a stewardship of resources, and we can extend this, as I said, to many other needs, and in fact, to all of our resources, because everything that we have, we use to meet some need or another. God wants these resources to be well taken care of, and he wants people's needs to be well met, and so he puts somebody on it as job one for them. He appoints deacons for that purpose. We do need somebody specifically to be on it. I'm going to emphasize that specifically, an office, because sometimes someone will say, well, but aren't we all supposed to be like taking care of the widows, and aren't we all supposed to be taking care of God's resources? Yes, we are. But again, this gets back to the, the danger of being haphazard. How do we know that the widows won't receive three meals on one night and then nothing for a month? Somebody organizes it, takes responsibility for saying, here's how it will be set up so that all of the needs will be met. That's a deacon. Somebody officially in charge of it. God has established deacons in his church for these couple of main reasons, to enable the spread of the word, and to adequately steward his resources, 
and to meet the needs of his people. It's part of the way that he loves his people. He loves his people by making sure that they're taken care of. In the word and tangibly, very concretely, so that no needs are overlooked, so that it is winsome in witness, and so that no needs are actually overlooked, so that people are helped. Both of those things, we need to keep both those things in mind. That's the purpose of a deacon. Now, with anybody that we're going to turn over some responsibility to, some decision-making to, some authority over some resources to, we're going to have to examine them to see if they're able to do so, if they're up to the task. Which takes us to the second point about qualification. But before we go there, let me just say publicly, <clears throat> there are people here in our congregation who serve as trustees. We don't have deacons, actually. We have what we call trustees. And we're in the process, I think, of, of better aligning some of the tasks to match what God's purpose is for deacons. And we're, I think we're in the process, too, of changing the name to deacon to better reflect the Bible. But right now, we call them trustees. Some people who give time to that, and it's an often thankless job. And I want to publicly thank them right now. Thank you for your service. It enables the spread of the word, make sure that God's resources are stewarded, and that God's people's needs are met. Thank you for doing that. Now we'll see if you're qualified to do it. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> what does a deacon look like? What, what are we looking for? God, God has established a deacon, and God has also given us qualifications for deacon. He hasn't just left it up to us to, to decide for ourselves what we're looking for. If you will now, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's the young pastor of the church of Ephesus, and he's telling him what God's qualifications are for church leaders. He's now officially codifying the, the general breakdown of the division of labor that we saw in Acts 6. If some given to the leadership and the teaching and the preaching, and some given to the, the service in the tangible, concrete way, he's now codifying that, and he's explaining, here's qualifications for elder, overseer, those terms are synonymous in the New Testament, qualifications for elder, and then beneath that, qualifications for deacon. Here's what you're looking for, Timothy. So an elder must be this, and likewise, verse 8, a deacon must be like this. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read verses 8 to 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. 
For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. First thing you notice as you look at this list is that it's all character-based. It's all about who this person is, not what this person can do. There's no skill set required. There's no gift of helps or gift of administration here. It's about who you are here. A deacon must be dignified, must be mature, must be of good repute, of good reputation, as Acts said. This is a person who must be in control of himself, specifically his control of his tongue and of his appetites. He's not a slanderer. He's not a gossip, not a drunk, he's not greedy, he's in control of himself. Now, critically, where does that control come from? I have to ask that question because we all know that there are teetotalers who have perfect financial integrity, don't slander anybody, and aren't even Christians. And there could be people in our church who are not given to drunkenness, not given to gossip, etc., but aren't qualified to be deacons. This comes from somewhere. It comes from somewhere inside. It comes from a heart, verse 9. A heart that is rooted in something. It's based upon something and is deriving from that something life that shows itself in this kind of fruit. It's a heart that, that grabs down and, and, and clamps onto the deep things, the mysteries of the faith, that says, this gospel is life to me. It won't let go of it. That sinks roots down into it. It's fixed on it. Hold on to the mystery, the mystery of God. God, who became a servant who humbled himself and came down to earth as a servant. A, a person who looks at that and is blown away by it and says, I want to be like that. I see the servant role that I'm about to embrace as directly connected to that incredible mystery. I have no idea how God can become incarnate. How God can so humble himself that he'll let people spit on him and beat him and kill him. It's God the Son. I have no idea how all that works out, but I look at it, sink roots into it, I grab it, and I'm gripped by it. And it changes me in some ways such that I'm not a slanderer given to greed, drunkenness. I'm not living based on what other people think of me so that I need to criticize them if they don't like me. Or so that I manipulate certain situations so that others will think highly of me. Or what money can buy me, it's not, not the root of my life. I'm not greedy for gain. And I don't seek to go hide in the escapism of alcohol. My life is sunk down into this gospel. And I hold on to those mysteries. That's the way it is with this person. Filled with the Spirit. That's how Acts would put that. What Paul's getting at here is this person must clearly display spiritual maturity. Such that it's something that begins in the heart and then the fruit comes out. Such that people could look at him and, and would say, we see you, we've examined you, we've poked around, we've seen you in the, in the lab of the home, down in verse 12. 
dug around there a little bit. We see how you are with your wife and your kids and your household affairs. And so we now feel comfortable in trusting to you some of the things of the house of God. There's a Christian maturity there that we're warmed to. Looking over this list, as well as what the apostles required of those seven back in Acts, this is what we all should aspire to, to some degree. We're looking at this, and the deacon is required to be someone who's arrived a little bit. Nobody ever fully arrives at this, but he's arrived a little bit, and we should be aiming to get there as well. So it's, it's a bar that's a little bit down the road, but it's not so incredibly high that it's like some select few will be like that, but the rest of us have no hope. Re- read the list. Shouldn't we all be dignified, not given to gossip and slander, in control of ourselves, rooted in the gospel, capable managers of our homes? We all should be like that, filled with the Spirit, wise. That's Christianity. The deacon must be examined to see if he's passed a little higher accounting in those areas, but not something that's far away from the rest of us. We all should aspire to it. Many of us are qualified to be deacons. All of us should be seeking to be. These two particular issues, though, have caused some disagreement over the years looking at this list. Are actually all of us qualified or capable of being qualified? A couple of particular questions that have caused disagreement within Christian circles have arisen here, and I'm going to raise these two things and then address them. Can women be deacons, and can divorced people be deacons? Those are two kind of hot questions, and they're very closely debated because in a lot of ways they're not real clear. But let me address both of those. First, the question of female deacons. In Acts 6, the apostles call for seven men. What are we to make of that? And here in verse 11, what are we to make of wives? Well, first of all, in the Acts passage, I don't think we should put too much weight on the fact that they called men. We don't put too much weight on the fact that they called seven. Few of us would argue that seven is the appropriate number of deacons for every church, regardless of size. I think what's going on there is the seed of the division of labor between elder and deacon, but it's not a codified, formal thing yet. The final word is here in in this Timothy passage, which is where we need to focus. So what about verse 11? Well, a couple of technical points about verse 11. It begins, their wives, likewise, must be dignified. A couple of technical points here that are important. Literally, the word there, T-H-E-I-R, is not in the text. It's not written. It could be assumed, and it could be grammatically correct to assume it, but the important point is, at the start here, as we're looking at it, that it's not present there. It just simply says, Wives, likewise, must be dignified. Clear parallel to verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Verse 11, wives, likewise, must be dignified. Clear parallel. What's going on there? An additional technical point. The word for wives is the common, ordinary, normal word for women. It's the same way that the word for husband and man are the exact same word. So we're reading verse 11. It either simply says, 
Wives likewise must be dignified, or women likewise must be dignified. So just on the surface, it's not real clear if Paul is meaning to say, in the parallel with verse 8, if he's meaning to say, the wives of deacons, just like the deacons, must be held to these same standards, likewise. Or if he's saying, in the event that women serve as deacons, which might be less common but is allowed, in the event that women serve as deacons, you've got to hold them to just the same standards as the men. It's not real clear what she's saying. Could go either way. I'm inclined, though, to think that he's describing female deacons. Here's why. Two reasons. And I know some will disagree with me, but here's, let me give you my two reasons. <clears throat> First, and most importantly in my mind, if this is a statement about the need to evaluate the wives of deacons... I find it very odd that there's no parallel statement directly above in the section about elders. There's nothing up there about evaluating the wives of elders. There are parallel statements about how the elder and deacon alike must be the manager of their kids and their household well. And there are parallel statements about how the, the elder and the deacon alike must be the husband of one wife. But there's nothing there about evaluating the wife of an elder, if this is in fact about the wives of deacons. It seems to me unlikely that the quality of an elder's wife is less important than the quality of a deacon's wife. So I'm inclined to think that we're not actually talking about evaluating the wives of deacons, but we're talking about female deacons. And the reason there's no parallel up above is that already from chapter 2, Paul has made clear to Timothy there are not to be female elders. No need to discuss them. That's my first reason. I think that's the most important. But the second one is... The absence of the word there or any kind of a hint of possession such that you would read it that deacons' wives, that idea of possession could have been put in there in any number of different ways, all of them very easy, just one word, but Paul didn't. I find that kind of odd. He could have been a lot more clear, could have settled the whole thing by just putting some idea of possession in there. Those are my two arguments, and I have to be honest, as far as arguments go, those are not real strong, rock-solid arguments. I, I acknowledge that. But I also want to say that the arguments on the other side are not very solid either. And so I conclude that I think we're talking about, on a whole, I'm, I'm persuaded we're talking about female deacons. They're allowed to exist. They might have been a little less common, which is why the men got more text. But women are allowed to be deacons. Historically, it did happen. And I think even practically speaking, if you think about what a deacon would do, the types of needs a deacon would be involved in, think of caring for a bedridden woman or sick children. Practically and for propriety's sake, it might be helpful to have some female deacons. That's how I conclude that. If you disagree, we can talk later. On the second question, though, what about divorced people? This also is tricky. It's drawn from verse 12, where it says, Let deacons be the husband of one wife. <clears throat> some have taken this to refer to the sin of divorce as being a disqualifying sin, particularly when joined with the need to manage your household well. The argument goes that someone who's divorced has so poorly managed his household over time that the marriage with the wife of his youth has been destroyed. Why would we think it wise to entrust him to manage the affairs of God's house? That's kind of how the argument goes. Is that what's being said? I don't think so. And let me explain. 
But as I do, do not misunderstand me to be somehow watering down the Bible's strong teaching against divorce. The Bible's very clear that divorce is sin, allowable on only two grounds. We can talk about that later. Don't misunderstand me. I just don't think that we're talking about divorce here. Here's why. Literally the phrase is a one-wife husband. Let deacons be a one-wife husband. And if we take that very rigidly to mean that you must be the husband of one wife, then that would exclude single people, people who were divorced before they became Christians, and people who have remarried after the death of their spouse. Those are positions that very few people are willing to argue for because they don't seem right to us. They don't feel right. So we keep looking. Is there more in here? I think there is a little more. I look at verse 12's grammar. It says, let deacons be. And the grammar is focusing on a never-ending status. Let deacons be. I'm looking at what they are. I look at this person to evaluate him. What is he? Not just what was he, what did he do, but what is he like? I'm looking at you such that today I see you are a one-wife man. Next week you are still a one-wife man. Three months from now, still a one-wife man. In other words, what I'm getting at is you seem to be steadfast in your holding to this woman. And moving on in the verse, to these kids and to this household. You're steadfast in this. That's what I'm looking for. What are you in an ongoing sense? This verse is not just saying something about the fact that I was married 13 years ago and haven't got divorced, therefore I'm qualified. That's out of sync with what this passage is about. This passage is trying to get at the hearts of people constantly. What are you like, not what is your state? This, this is the heart of my argument here, is that it's not just about the fact that I got married only to one woman. But the fact that I am steadfast to her in an ongoing sense. I hold to her. Is that what you're like today in an, and in an ongoing sense? I'm less concerned with what you did than I am with what you do. What you were with what you are. The grammar is kind of pointing me in that way. Now, people will disagree. It's a close-run thing. It seems to me, though, that the emphasis is on, I'm looking at you now. What kind of person are you? Now, clearly, the, the root of what, you know, the, suppose there's some divorce in my past here, in your past or whatever, suppose there's some divorce back there, the root of that and the fruit from it will have an effect on what you're like today, and we need to look at that and examine it. But what we're looking at is, what are you like right now? And is there a track record of showing you to be something? So my conclusion is that a past divorce in itself is not disqualifying. There will be disagreement on that. I, I understand that. If you disagree, you can dialogue with me later. I don't have a lot more to say about that. That's my conclusion, though. The qualifications for deacon laid out in this chapter. What we're looking for is some person man or woman, I'm persuaded, who is a mature Christian, whose life is grabbing hold of the gospel, is rooted in it, and then is showing fruit from that. 
It's a little further down the road. So, so we can say, we've seen you, we trust you, we're, we're confident in entrusting things to you. God's established deacons. God's given us qualification for them. Now let's move out of the theoretical and with our last point here, come down to us here in our congregation. Here's the third point. There is great gain in serving as a deacon. It means that to be spoken to you. There is great gain for you in serving as a deacon. And for all of us, and for God's kingdom, but especially for you. So you should aspire to be a deacon. Because, look at verse 13 in the First Timothy passage. Look how it benefits you. Verse 13. I'll read it again. For those who serve well as deacons gain. Your translation may say obtain. Those who serve well, God-honoring, Christ-loving people, serving self-sacrificing deacons, gain for themselves two amazing things, things that you want. You see the word gain in there. This is, this is carrot theology. I think I might have described this once before. This is carrot theology. Like when a, a farmer would attempt to move his stubborn animal who's attached to, say, a cart or a plow, animal's not moving, the farmer could pick up his switch and whack the animal across the backside and drive him forward, or he could take the switch, tie to the end of it a carrot, and dangle it out in front of the animal's nose, extending to him a hope. If you move forward, you will gain this carrot. This is carrot theology. God does use stick theology sometimes. He does. But all the promises of the Bible are carrot theology. He's holding something out in front of you, something you really want. You will gain a good standing for yourself, a good status or rank. You'll be honored in the body, respected, perhaps, which is nice. But far more importantly, you'll gain good standing before the Lord. We're not talking about how you become a Christian. You can't earn your way. You can't become a deacon, work really hard, work really well, and become a Christian. The only person who can be a deacon is already a mature Christian. That's not in view here. But once you're a mature Christian serving as a deacon, you've got something great to gain here. You can live day by day by day, and then one day at the end here... You can live in and hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's reward. You can experience that. How? By being a good and faithful servant. Whether that be capital D deacon or lowercase d deacon. You can embrace some ministry, give your heart to it in accordance with God's principles, and gain a good standing with God. It is not wrong to want that. It's not self-seeking in a wrong way. It's self-seeking in a right way. Jesus told us that, a bit about the well-done, good, and faithful servant. He told us that so that we would think, 
I can make it such that God will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I should live like that. I should desire that. I should chase that. And this passage is saying, how do you gain that good standing? By serving well as a deacon. It's clear. It's right here. So serve well as a deacon. That should be enticing to you. It should be a carrot. You should be thinking right now, not, when's he going to be done? You should be thinking right now, reward is right there. And the Bible told me where it is. It's in faithful deacon service. Am I qualified? I should become qualified. Am I able to be in that role? If not, I want to be at least a little de-deacon. I want to be following along the path of enabling the ministry of the word, creating a community that's attractive, stewarding God's resources, meeting people's needs. I want to be about that. I want to be chasing that. There's great gain there. View your grace-given salvation, your grace-given maturity, and your grace-given location in this body as an opportunity to do your utmost in service to others. You do not want to hear from God. I matured you. I grew you. I put you in a body right next to need, and you decided to give your life to television. And the golf course, and hiking, and skiing, and exorbitant amounts of work punctuated by just as much vacation travel as you could afford. How can I commend such a waste? How can I say, well done, good and faithful servant, to that? I won't, and I don't. You don't want to hear that from God. You don't want to live in that with God. You can gain the opposite of good standing can gain that there's more in this carrot you will also gain end of the verse great confidence in the faith that is in Christ you gain great personal confidence in the truth of the gospel being in the midst of God's work up to your elbows in need with no idea how it's all going to work out praying desperately asking God to move giving your life to something, hoping that this situation will change, that these numbers will add up. Being in the midst of that, engaging with things like, like budgets and buildings, things that everybody has an opinion about and is willing to tell you, negotiating through that in grace, praying for God to change proud hearts, God, experiencing God giving you courage to confront pride or to make a right decision in the face of pressure giving you grace to lay down your life to meet somebody's practical need and watching them say thank you and meaning it. It's a front row seat to God's work of building his kingdom. You see it in a real way. Think about this. Last week, Pastor Porter was here preaching. Pastor Porter is a former pastor of this church. He's in town. He's preaching here last week. And as he was opening, he described how he often looks at this, this facility right here that he was around when it was built and just marvels at remembering the stories of God. We, those of us who weren't here, are firm believers that this facility has been built. We're in it. And we hear some of the stories about it. I've heard some of the stories about God did this and that and came through with some money here and, and granted this petition with the city and yada, yada, yada. We hear some of those stories and we nod and we say, yep, God was involved in that. 
But it's never going to be the same for me and for Pastor Porter. He sat at the table, so to speak, praying, God, if the council votes this way, the whole thing falls apart. God, if the money doesn't come through, the whole thing falls apart. God, where are we going to meet? How are we going to do this? Etc., etc. And God answered and moved. He experienced something being at the table that I, 15 years away from the table, will never experience, even if I hear the story told. I may not even hear the story told. Things look very different at the table, in the center, than they do at the periphery. Faithful service puts you at the table, gives you the front row seat in the center. You see God at work and your confidence grows. It's true. God lives. God moves. God reigns from heaven. Christ is real. He changes people. He changes circumstances. I see it again and again and again. It's very different when you're at the end of your rope and you pray and God moves. It's very different than hearing the story about someone who was at the end of the rope and prayed and God moved. It's very different. You can gain something from being at the table in the center. Faithful service. Those are two great gains offered to you. And those are for you personally. And there are great gains for us. Our needs get met by faithful deacon service. Great gains for us spiritually, for the community at large, spiritually as the gospel is enabled to go forward. What happens if nobody steps up to serve? Well, they don't gain, and neither do we, and neither does the community. The whole thing falls. There's so much gain here. So why in the world do we have such a hard time finding deacons, trustees? Can't figure that out. I look at this and I say, I would want to sign up for that if I wasn't already something else. It should be attractive to you. Why? Why do we have such a hard time? Every year about this time, we go through this process of beginning to find nominees for different positions of office, elder and trustee in our church. And every year we cast the net really wide. And every year we get one person, maybe two. Which is just barely enough. So I'm not here to like bemoan some disaster. It works, barely. It works, but barely. It seems to me that given all this gain, it should be the other way around, though. There should be an overabundance of people coming forward saying, Evaluate me. Tell me, am am I qualified? And if not, where do I have to grow? Because I really want to be at the table. I want to be in the center. I want to be gaining these things for myself, and I want to be gaining these things for others and for others out there. And there'd be such a super abundance of people that we have to turn some away and say, no, actually, we've we've got enough deacons with a capital D. And then the people would say, who who are the extras? Well, okay, then don't send me back to the bench. Put me in the game somehow. Make me a deacon with a lowercase d. Get me involved somehow. I want to serve here. That should be the case. But what we still find is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 
I don't know if that's exactly the way it is. I've never actually gone through and counted and evaluated. But it bears some semblance to reality. If you look at our directory, there are people on there who do everything and people on there who do nothing. And there are more people who do nothing than there are who do everything. That makes no sense to me. People aren't selfish enough. You don't want the gain enough. Of course, I'm using the selfish word facetiously there. Get that, please. That should not be the case, but it is. Why is that? I'm just left to conclude that either people are not concerned about enabling the spread of the word, are not concerned about meeting the needs of people, making sure that the needs of people are met and that the community is built, the resources are stewarded. They're either not concerned about those things or you're not qualified and you should grow or you're just not selfish enough. You don't care to benefit yourself or others. Maybe I've missed something, but those seems to be the options to me. Which are you? Some of you are up to your shoulders in service. I'm not talking to you right now. I say thank you to you. I'm talking to the other 80%. Which are you? Are you the unconcerned one about the reasons that God creates deacons of the capital D or many, many deacons of the lower D to enable the spread of the word and to bless the body? Are you unconcerned about that? Is that, is that one you? Or do you just say, there's no way I'm qualified. I'm not a mature Christian. Then your response is to start maturing. Get around other people. Take up the scriptures. Prayer. Get involved in the fellowship. Grow. You should aspire to be that deacon qualified person. Or you're the one who just never really thought about how much it would benefit you and others. I don't know which one you are. My hope and my prayer, though, is that you will embrace, support, and be willing to serve as God's appointed deacon on the deacon board with a capital D or as a deacon with a lower D, either way. God means for there to be deacons for purposes, to bless his people and to bless you. Come to the table, get in the game. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.